Well, hey, welcome to Center Church. My name is Josh Miller. I'm one of the pastors here. I missed you guys last weekend. I loved getting to hear Pastor Justin preach, but I was a little bit jealous. I never quite know what to do with myself on Sundays when I'm not preaching. So if you just see me with my hands like this in front of my face, it's because I don't know what to do with my hands, okay? It's just like I'm just sitting here. Um, hey, if you're new, super glad that you're here. We've had a ton of new people coming around the last six weeks. In fact, we've had over 100 people stop and fill out first-time guest cards over the last six weeks. So big hand for that. Um, we, we love guests. We love you if you're new because God loves you. Uh, you matter to us because you matter to God. So we get really excited when new people come and check us out. And we're grateful for all of you that serve and that and that make it a hospitable place to be here on Sunday evening. So we're really grateful for y'all. Um, if you are new, let me kind of catch you up on where we are as a church because you're, you're sort of dropping into a really important kind of transition moment in the life of our church that, that Pastor Justin mentioned. So for the last two years, we've been meeting here in the evenings at Cross Life Church. So this building doesn't belong to us. Our name isn't Cross Life. You might be confused by that, right? Cross Life's gracious church. They let us rent this space from them in the evenings. And so we've been doing that for the last two years. And it's been great. And man, we've grown. We've seen people's lives be changed. We've seen people grow in faith, marriages be strengthened, kids be discipled. I mean, so many things that God has done over the last few years. And we've actually run out of space. Okay. So we've run out of space, parking, kids space, auditorium space, the whole thing. So that's why we launched a third service a couple of weeks ago. So now we're meeting at three and at 430 and at six. Okay. And let me be really straight up with you. I don't love it. Okay. I don't love it, but I love that you can come. Okay. So it's like, all right, we're willing to do this for a while so that more people can come and hear the gospel. I'm good with that. Okay. But I'm exhausted at the end of the day. You don't want to talk to me at eight o'clock on Sunday night. It's like, that is a very grumpy human being. Okay. Um, so we've been doing three services to create space, but we've just been asking God, God, would you open a door? Would you provide a way for us to buy our own facility and just have a place where we could plant a flag for the gospel, man, and have room for families and young adults and college students and empty nesters and kids to come and hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and be transformed by him. Cause that's what we're all about as a church. And so we've been praying and we've been praying, we've been looking and earlier this year, God opened that door. Okay. God opened that door. And because of many of your all's generosity, we were able to buy our very own building, okay? So right around the corner, 475 Westfield Road, it's a 10,000 square foot property that we own, like it is ours, uh, we own it, kind of like moving into our first home, but when we bought it, it was a ski and snowboard shop, okay? Not that helpful for a church, okay? Unless you're trying to have the coolest youth ministry in the world, right? But it was like, all right, what do we do? So we needed to raise some money, and we needed to transform that place from a snowboard store into a church facility, and, and so we did. We raised that money, you guys gave generously, God did some amazing things. So we started renovating that building like months and months and months ago. And we've been showing you pictures. And at first you're like, that still looks like a snowboard store. And then you're like, now it looks like it's been bombed out. You know, that's not helpful. And oh, now there looks like what could be a bathroom, you know, all these things. Well, here's the thing, man, our, our contractors have been doing an incredible job. They've been working really, really hard. Pastor Justin has been working really, really hard. Like 40% of Pastor Justin's blood is in this building at this point, you know? So like big shout out to Pastor Justin. Man, and, and because of all that, we've met with our contractors. We said, hey, how's it going? And we're at the point where we are ready to share some concrete details about when we're going to move into our brand new facility. You guys excited about that? You guys excited about that? All right. So here, here's the deal. By God's grace and because of your generosity and a lot of people's incredible hard work, man, I am so excited to let you know we will be hosting grand opening services in our brand new facility on Sunday, October 16th. Come on. All right. Guys, that's only five weeks away, okay? That's only five, that means there's only five more Sundays in this facility. We are so fired up. We're gonna have services at 9.15 and 11 a.m. at the new facility. It's right around the corner from here. If you haven't been there already, go drive by. If you walk in and look like you belong there, no one will question you, okay? So it's all about confidence. Just go in there. If you have a hard hat, wear that. Um, and, and so here's the thing. We're gonna be moving to 9.15 and 11 a.m. We are really fired up about it. Now, uh, we've been meeting in the evenings, and I know some of you love the evenings, and so you might ask the question, like, well, why are we 
moving to the mornings? That's a fair question. Let me, let me tell you why. Um, the first reason is that moving to the mornings will help us reach more people. Okay, it just will. So studies have consistently demonstrated that, that more people are likely to go to a church service on Sunday morning than any other time of the week. And that includes all kinds of people, church people, de-church people, unchurched people. Okay, so we're passionate about reaching people, so we're like, yeah, amen, we want to do that. So it'll help us reach more people. Number two, it will help us reach different kinds of people. Okay, different kinds of people. Let me be straight up with you. Um, there are two groups of people that evening services are really attractive to. Do you know who it is? Young adults and college students. Look around the room, everybody. <laughs> like, look around. We have a lot of young adults and college students. We love you. We love young adults and college students. But, man, evenings can be hard on families, right? Because you've got the week is coming. You've got to pack lunches and get homework done. And your kids are, you know. So moving to Sunday mornings is going to open the door for us to reaching more different kinds of people, whether that's young families, established families, empty nesters, while still very much being able to reach college students and young adults, okay? So excited about that. And the third reason is that meeting in the mornings will open up an opportunity to do really meaningful ministry in the evenings, all right, so we're excited to host things like nights of worship and prayer at the new facility where we just come together and we turn the volume super loud and we just like worship and we pray. We're excited to host things like marriage seminars, parenting classes, different discipleship courses, all things that we can't really do right now because we don't have anywhere to host it on Sunday morning. But when we're meeting on Sunday mornings, we have that kind of Sunday evening slot open. Okay, so we're excited about it. I know you might be an evening person and I'm like, I'm sorry. I know you're bummed out. We do hope in the future. I hope by God's grace to one day be able to offer an evening service again. But in this next season, we're going to be at 9, 15, and 11. Okay, so mark your calendars. We'll have plenty of coffee there. You know, you're like, Josh, I don't wake up till 12. And I would be like, okay, we need to have two conversations then. One, get up earlier too. It'll be fine. All right, so, so that's what we're going to be doing. Um, and, and just so you understand, uh, this is a really big moment in the life of our church. I, you know, I don't know if you've been around church much, but you don't get to do this much. Like, most churches have like one of these, maybe two, but like one of these where like God moves, he provides a property, you raise the money, you build the thing, and you get to move in. So this is really like a holy moment in the life of our church, and man, as a result, we want to prepare for it. We want to prepare for it both practically and spiritually, okay? We want to go in, man, ready for what the Lord wants to do. One of my favorite Proverbs says, uh, the war horse is made ready for battle, but victory belongs to the Lord. And it's kind of this dynamic of, man, we want to prepare practically. We also want to ask God to do what only he can do. And so I'm going to invite our usher teams uh, down forward to hand out uh, this little plan, okay? This is a really beautiful uh, handout that our teammates, on the one side, it's got all the details for the grand opening, so you can put that on your refrigerator or put that in your car, whatever's going to help you remember it. And then on the back side, it's got our plan, okay? So this is our game plan to help prepare our church practically and spiritually for making this move, okay? So there's kind of two ways we're going to do each. On the practical side, we're going to have a really incredible night on October 1st. It's going to be a serving teams training. That's going to be the very first opportunity you have to get into the new building. And we're going to have the, the volume turned up. We're going to be worshiping. You're going to get to see the building. You're going to get to see like where everything's going to be. So you want to make plans to be at that. It's going to be a lot of fun. Man, we're going to have child care on site. We're just going to like, man, this is how we're going to welcome people with our serving team. So that's October 1st. The next Saturday is October 8th. That is a get your hands dirty day, okay? That's like come over to the building at 9 a.m. and we're going to get it ready, all right? It's like we're going to do some mulching. We're going to pull out weeds and we're going to put together changing tables and just we're going to get that place spit shine ready for the next weekend. And so if you're like a hands-on kind of person this whole time, you've thought like, Josh, on the, you know, I am really glad that I haven't had to hang drywall in that new building, but like I kind of want to do something. It's like we've got something for you to do that'll be meaningful, okay? So that's the two practical things. And then the two spiritual things is that the week leading up to grand opening, we're going to be hosting a week of prayer and fasting, okay? And that might intimidate you a little bit, and that's okay, okay? Here's what you do when you fast. You say, God, I need you to move. That's what fasting, it's a posture of dependence. 
God, I need, you to, I need you to move. And in the same way that I'm dependent on physical food for physical life, I'm dependent on you for spiritual life. And so what we're going to be doing is every day we're going to be inviting you to fast during lunch that whole week and devote that time to prayer. And just going to the Lord and saying, Lord, would you move in my life? Would you move in our church? Would you move through this facility to glorify yourself in this place? And we're going to have the building open every day from 12 to 1. You can come in. We're going to have prayer prompts. We're going to have music playing. It's going to be an opportunity for us to pray. So we're excited about that. And that, that week is going to sort of climax, culminate in a night of worship and prayer on Wednesday, October 12th. Okay, Wednesday, October 12th. Before we even welcome the community in, we as a church want to come together and pray. And we want to come together and worship. So that's going to be like the first full service that we ever have in that building is going to be one of worship and prayer, which I think is pretty cool. Because it's us saying, Lord, this is yours. This, this place belongs to you. We're setting this apart for your purposes. And then that's going to be an incredible night. Okay? So we're going to be talking about this every week for the next five weeks. But I wanted to give you this card now so you can take a look at it, so you can start marking your calendars. Uh, man, but I'm excited. I hope you're excited. It really is the culmination of a lot of prayer, a lot of sacrifice, a lot of investment. And it, it, we are going to be sitting in the favor of God. You ever thought about that? Like, we're going to go get to sit in a physical representation of God's favor on our lives. Isn't that pretty neat? And so let's just pray. Let's, let's thank him for that, and we'll jump into 1 Peter, okay? Lord, you are gracious and good, and this building is just the evidence of your generosity to us, and I thank you for that. God, we don't want the building for the sake of the building, but we want the building for the sake of your glory. So God, would you prepare us, and would you prepare this place uh, that, that it might be used to draw many people to love and to glorify you? Uh, Lord, and I pray that you prepare us to do it. And so Lord, as we look at 1 Peter chapter 2, would you give us eyes to see what you have for us to see today? We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you have a Bible, you can meet me in 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. If you're new, again, welcome. We've been walking through the letter of 1 Peter together. We believe it takes the whole Bible to make a whole Christian. So what we do is we just kind of walk chapter by chapter through different parts of the Bible. So 1 Peter was written by the Apostle Peter, one of Jesus' best friends, to a group of churches that were located in uh, what is modern-day Turkey, so it was then called Asia Minor. And in chapter 1 of 1 Peter, Peter's talking about all that God has done for you if you're a Christian. Okay, so you go back and read it. It's this incredible chapter. If you ever need to be encouraged, just read 1 Peter chapter 1 because basically Peter goes through and says, hey, uh, God has called you to be born again to a living hope. He's given you a new identity, a new calling, and a new purpose in life. Man, that is amazing. What an incredible chapter. Well, in chapter 2, Peter transitions. He transitions, and he says, hey, you've been born again to a living hope. Now it's time to grow up. Like, you, you've been born again, you're like, you're, you're like a baby, and now it's time to grow, okay? So just like a baby needs to grow up physically, a Christian needs to grow up spiritually. That's what Peter's saying in this section of, of 1 Peter chapter 2. And on the one hand, that's a little bit challenging, right? Especially if you're new, you're like, whoa, man, that's like right in the, you know, right, right in the face. Because the, the call to grow up means that uh, you're inadequate, right? Like, there's things about your life that aren't how they should be. You need to develop. You aren't currently what you might one day be. And that's challenging. But on the other side, it's also hopeful, isn't it? Because it means by the grace of God, through the spirit of God, with the help of the people of God, one day you could be different than you are now. You could be a more resolute, more holy, more godly, more faithful version of you. And I think that's pretty incredible. One of my desires, one of my great desires for this church now and forevermore is that we would have just as much passion about growing spiritually as we all have about growing in other areas of our lives. I mean, think about it. We all want this in every other area of our life, right? Why are you in college or why are you in grad school? Because you want to learn and you want to grow and you are not something now that you hope to be four years from now and $150,000 from now, right? Like, like if, if you're exactly the same at the end of your education, would you be satisfied? Then you'd be like, why did I just spend four years and all this money? I, I, didn't, I didn't grow at all, right? So you want to grow in your education. What does every parent want for their kids? 
You want your kids to grow. You want them to develop, right? Physically and emotionally and intellectually. Man, you want to see them developing. You don't, if your child is at seven, exactly how they were at five, you'd be really, really concerned, right? Good parents want to see their children grow. Why do you go to the gym? Why do you listen to podcasts? Why do you read books? Well, we do all of those things because we want to grow. We intuitively understand that we're not what we might one day be, but man, through time and through effort, we might grow. Here's the thing. I want us to apply that same diligence and that same passion to growing in our relationship with God. Because think about it. How, how silly would it be to be really diligent in your hobbies and driven in your career and dedicated in your education, but passive and apathetic in your relationship with God? Right? Jesus would say, what does it profit a man or woman to gain the whole world and yet to forfeit your soul? Peter says, no, 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 no. Don't be driven in all those other areas and kind of apathetic and passive in this area. Don't be driven to become the best you can be in your career, but be content being a baby your whole life spiritually. Peter says, says, no, devote yourself to growing. Make it your personal goal to become the holiest version of yourself possible. To become the holiest version of yourself possible. Do you know that's the best gift you can give your spouse? I mean, that, truly, that is the best gift you can give your kids. It's the best give you, gifts you can give your company. It's the best gift that you can give your classmates. Best gift that you can give your neighbors. A holy, resolute, growing, spirit-led version of you. Man, that is what we're after as a church. Amen? Like, wouldn't that be incredible if, if this was just a church full of 400 people that are like, I'm trying to become the most holy version of myself. You're like, that's a place I want to be a part of. Right? Well, that is what we're trying to grow. Look, I want to grow up, and I want to help you grow up. And that is what Peter shows us in this text, four ways to grow up, okay? So here's number one. We grow up by repenting of sin. We grow up by repenting of sin. Look at verse number one. He says this, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Okay, that word so, you see so in that first verse, that connects this command back to a statement in verse 23 of chapter 1. Okay, this is important to understand. Verse 23 says this, since you have been born again. Peter is saying, since you have been born again, since God has forgiven you of your sins and given you a new identity, put these things away. Peter isn't saying grow up to earn your salvation. Peter is saying grow up in response to your salvation. You see the important difference? He's not saying, hey, if you grow up, God will love you. He's saying, hey, God has already saved you through the work of Jesus Christ. Now you grow up in response. Here's the truth. If you try to grow up to earn your salvation, it will crush you. Because when, you're, when, when you don't do well, when you fail, you'll just be in despair. And when you are doing well, you'll be full of pride. So if you try to grow up to earn your salvation, it will crush you. But if you grow up in response to your salvation, it's a beautiful calling. It's a beautiful calling because holiness glorifies God. Did you know that the, the book of Genesis says that we are image bearers of God? you know what that means? It means when I look at you, I'm supposed to see something about God in you. Whoa, think about that. Like I'm supposed to be able to look at your character and be like, that's, that's like the character of God. Is that the kind of dad you want to be? Don't you want your kids to grow up and read something about God and be like, yeah, that makes sense. That's how my dad was. Oh, man, what a calling in life. What if your coworkers were like reading the Bible and saying, I can believe that this is true of the one real God because of her? Because I've seen that in her. Man, what a calling. That's what Peter is saying. Hey, we don't grow up to try to earn our salvation. We grow up as a beautiful calling in response to our salvation. We want to image God to the world around us as well as we possibly can. So how do we do that? Well, Peter says it starts by saying no to some things. It starts by putting some things away. You see that phrase, put away? That means totally get rid of. So that verb was used to describe changing clothing. 
Like taking off some clothes and putting on some new clothes. Have you ever um, forgotten to got, get some of your laundry out of the wash? You ever done this? This happened this weekend. And you're like, oh, it smells kind of musty. Maybe I can put it in the dryer and get away with it, right? But then you get it out of the dryer and you're like, oh, man. You know, it's like I got to do the whole load over again because it smells bad. There's nothing to be done. It doesn't matter how much cologne you put on. It smells like musty cologne, right? Like it just smells bad. What do you got to do? You got to get rid of those clothes. You got to take them off. You got to put them back in the washer. They're not going to work for this week. Well, that's what Peter is saying. He's saying, hey, we don't leave some of these things on when we become a Christian. We take it all off, okay? We remove all of it, and we start over. You see, growing up starts with saying no to some things so that you can say yes to better things. And this is what we know in all of life. New beginnings require necessary endings, right? Like, if you want to grow physically fit, you've got to start saying yes to some things. You've got to start saying no to some other things, right? Like, if you want to grow in your marriage, if you want to grow as a parent, if you want to grow at work or at school, like, it just, we, we know this in all of life, same thing in your spiritual life. If you want to grow spiritually, if you want to grow up, you've got to start saying no to some things so that you can say yes to better things. And Peter goes on to list a number of attitudes and actions that we need to say no to. And I'm going to talk about those briefly, but here's the thing. This isn't intended to be an exhaustive list. It's not, it's not like Peter's like, hey, as long as you're not a hypocrite, adultery and greed is fine, okay? Like, he's not trying to say every single thing. He's, he's making the point that to fulfill your calling as an ambassador of Christ, you have to start by repenting of sin. To fulfill your calling as an ambassador of Christ, you have to start by repenting of sin. The word repent is the Greek word metanoia, and it means to make a 180-degree turn. That's, that's literally what the word means. So by nature... Our face is towards sin and away from God. And what repentance is, is I turn away from sin and I turn towards God. To repent means to turn around. And repentance is one of the fundamentals of the Christian life. It is absolutely one of the basics of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So let me just give you an example of that. In Matthew chapter 2, John the Baptist came preaching. He was kind of the forerunner of Jesus. Jesus said he was the greatest of all of the prophets. And this was a summary of his sermon. You ready? Repent for the kingdom of God, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Later, John was arrested and Jesus began his ministry. And he went out and he began to preach. And this was a summary of Jesus' ministry, Matthew 4, 17. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In Acts chapter 2, when the crowd asked the apostle Peter, what shall we do? Peter responded by saying, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. You see, repentance is absolutely fundamental to the Christian life. And you don't just repent once to begin the Christian life. You go on repenting in the Christian life. I have to repent all the time. Okay, just this week, I, I just had a bad, anybody ever just had a bad week, right? Handy or bad week. Like I told Meredith, I feel like our marriage is on a losing streak right now. You know, it's like we need to get a new quarterback in there. Like it, it's just, I just, I felt like there were multiple times I just blew it. I was just inconsiderate. Like Meredith asked me to do something. I didn't do it. Then when she kind of called me on it, I got defensive. If you're keeping score at home, that's two in the L column, okay? When you are inconsiderate and defensive, that's, those are both bad, okay? So it's like, what do you do? It's, and I'm, I'm like prepping this whole sermon on repentance. I'm like, dang it, you know. I, you know, all, all I could do is repent and just like, you know, say, Meredith, I'm sorry. I'm not, it's not I'm sorry, but I'm just sorry. I'm just sorry that I was a jerk and confess it to the Lord. God, that is not what you've called me to in my marriage. That's not how you've called me to live. And man, ask his forgiveness and then move forward. That, that's just kind of the rhythm of the Christian life is repentance, reconciliation, and resolve. Okay, I'm repenting, I'm turning, I'm being reconciled to God and to the person I offended, and I'm resolving myself to put these things to death and to move forward. Do you know what kind of pastor I think you want? I think you want a repentant one. 
Do you know what kind of wife you should look for? A repentant one. Do you know what you want for your kids more than anything else? You want them to be repentant. Do you know what you want for your daughter one day? You want her to marry a repentant man. Right? Do you know what you want a supervisor? You want a repentant, like a supervisor that owns his mistakes and says, I'm sorry, a miracle has happened. Right? Guys, here's the thing. This is a little bit, just bear with me. Here's the thing. We all want other people to repent. We just don't want to repent. We're all like, man, this world would be so much better if people would just start taking ownership for their issues and start taking responsibility for themselves, except for me. But guys, here's the thing. You will never grow up spiritually if you don't take ownership for your sin and repent. Growth begins when repentance begins. Growth begins when repentance begins. And any expression of Christianity, hear me, any expression of Christianity which fails to include a clear and consistent call to repentance is sub-biblical Christianity. It, I'm, I'm just telling you, you listen to somebody, your favorite pastor, whatever, your favorite Bible teacher, you go to a church, if you are never called to change, it is sub-biblical Christianity. There's simply no way to read the ministry of Jesus, read the letters of the apostles, read the book of Acts, and come away and be like, we're all fine, no one needs to change. It's like the Bible makes zero sense if we're all fine and no one needs to change. If we want to grow, it starts, man, with taking responsibility and being willing to repent of our sin. And can I be honest? That's really challenging. It's really, really challenging. I think for two reasons. Number one, it's just challenging to own that you made a mistake, right? That, that you did something wrong. That's hard for me to do. It took me a while. I had to like, you know, okay, I really do need to go and apologize for this, right? The other reason it's hard is because of the cultural moment that we, that we live in. You see, our culture's highest value, I think right now, is probably tolerance. And as a result, we live, in, we live in a world where, like, almost everybody outside of the scriptures would say, like, no, you should never, you've never done anything wrong. You just, you know, it's a conditioning issue, or it's a family of origin issue, or you, you actually think you're wrong, but you just need to accept the fact that you're not wrong, that, that you're actually much better than you think. So we just have to engage with this for a second, okay? So bear with me. This might be offensive to you. I'll, I'll try not to be. Okay, Christians should affirm the old definition of tolerance. Here's what the old definition of tolerance was. You ready? The old definition was, I disagree with you. I think you were wrong, but I respect you because you're made in the image of God. I'll be kind to you. I'll be gracious to you. I will not affirm and celebrate what you're doing, but I'll be gracious and loving and kind to you because you are made in the image of God. That is the old definition of tolerance. Christians have always supported that, should support that. Christians should not, however, support the new definition of tolerance. The new definition of tolerance is I affirm and celebrate whatever you believe and however you behave. Do you see the difference? Christians must reject the new definition of tolerance because of our love for God and our love for others. Let me just explain what I mean. We can't love God while celebrating behaviors and beliefs that dishonor him. And we can't truly love others while celebrating behavior that God tells us will destroy them. Here's, here's what the Bible says to all of us as a people. And I'm saying all of us. Me, you, whether you grew up in church or didn't grow up in church, no matter whatever your, your background is morally, no matter uh, man, whatever your preferences are, your political party, here's what the Bible says to every single person. You just have to understand this to understand the scriptures. The Bible says that God loves you. He made you in his image. He made you on purpose and for a purpose. You are so valuable to him that he sent his one and only begotten son to die in your place. That is how much God loves you, and that is how significant you are in his sight. The Bible says all of those things, and you need to change. And you need to change. You are not okay the way you are. 
There are things in your life which need to end and to cease and to die. The Bible says that you are at the same time deeply and profoundly loved by the most important being in the universe. You are intrinsically valuable and you need to change. Do you see how unique that is? So on the one hand, that's not kind of a sentimental tolerance that just says, hey, I'm okay, you're okay, do whatever you want. But it's also not kind of a rigid traditionalism that just sort of bashes people that are different or that are struggling and says, like, you better get your act together. It's this beautiful coming together of loved and called to transformation. Doesn't that resonate with your life? I mean, you don't have to be honest with me, but like when you're honest with yourself, aren't you like, yeah, that's me. Like you've got some things that are awesome about you. Like, praise the Lord, like you've got gifts, you've got compassions, you've got things God has put in you that are incredible, and we need to fan those things into flame. And then you've got some things you don't want anybody to know about, right? Like, I don't want to fan these things into flame. I probably shouldn't. And you know intrinsically, yeah, like this is not good. Isn't that kind of, doesn't that resonate with your experience with the world and with other people? It's like, man, there are some incredible, beautiful things about our world. There are some wonderful things about other people. And then there are some things that are like, man, that is not great. And that really does need to change. Why is that? Well, because of what the Bible says about anthropology, about who we are as human beings. That's, that's why, no matter how long you follow Jesus, you will never graduate from the school of repentance. Man, until the day that you go to be with the Lord in heaven, you will always need to be putting to death the deeds of the flesh and bringing to life the fruit of the Spirit. When you start repenting, you start growing, and when you stop repenting, you stop growing. All right, so maybe your next step from this sermon is simply to stop rationalizing and excusing your sin and to take ownership for it and, and to say, Lord, I want to change. And do you know what? Do you know what the cross of Christ does to the word of repentance? It makes it a safe word and a hopeful word. God already knows. He's inviting you into relationship. You don't have to be afraid that you're going to be rejected and condemned by him because Jesus was re rejected and condemned on your behalf. And so maybe you just need to like do what I did this past week and just own it, say I'm sorry, repent, reconcile and resolve. You might need to do that with a big public sin, right? There might be some big glaring thing in your life, fair enough. Or it might be more sort of interior motivation sin. Did you notice in Peter's list, there's nothing in there that would like make headlines, right? It wasn't any like murder, you know, and like adultery and all this stuff. It's like, look what he, he says, malice. What is malice? Well, malice is when you feel ill will towards someone else and you're glad when they fail. Ooh, you ever been there? You've been there, you know that. Anyway, uh, what is deceit? Deceit is when you aren't authentic about what's really going on. Ooh, and you come into the, you know, hey, how's your week? Oh, it's great, you know. How's your marriage? Doing? Oh, marriage is great, you know. Like, no, it's not. You just confess you need to repent six times, you're what, you know. Right, that's deceit. What's it? hypocrisy? Um, hypocrisy is when you are a different person based on where you are or who you're with. So it comes from um, the, the Greek word uh, for an actor who played different parts in a play. And the actor would put on one mask and go act a certain way, go back behind the stage, put on a different mask, go and act a different way. You ever do that? There's like church you, and there's school you, and there's work you, and there's weekend you, and there's family you. Hypocrisy. Envy is, is when it's very difficult for you when good things happen to other people, especially other people that you think you're better than. Like, she's getting married. She had like, she slept with all of her boyfriends in college. And now she's getting married and I'm still single. Oh, they're, oh, they're pregnant. Oh, he got the house, right? It's like, it's like, man, I don't, I'm not excited for other people to be blessed. What's slander? Slander is when you just speak negatively or in a disparaging way about anyone. 
You know, it's like that supervisor that's really difficult for you that you kind of make those like under your breath comments, right? That, that, uh, that coworker that you just have a really difficult time getting along with, right? And everybody else does too, and so you're in the break room, right? That's slander. I don't know about you, but I can find a lot of things to repent of in that list, right? Now, I wonder if there's something for you as well. Here's the thing. Peter calls us to put those things away so that we can grow up into our calling. Do you know who knows what it's about to repent of something and to grow up into your calling? Peter. You ever thought about that? He was talking about a guy that knew how to screw up. It was Peter. But he also knew how to what? Repent. Man, and God ended up working through him in a mighty way because he repented and was transformed. Here's the truth, and then we'll move on. You will never be perfectly holy, but you can be holier than you are right now. So don't be like, well, I'll never reach God's standard, so I might as well not try. No. You wouldn't do that. It's not like, well, I'll never be the strongest person on the planet, so I just won't go to the gym. Like, that doesn't even make sense. It's like, you'll never be perfectly holy. You'll never fully arrive. But you can be a holier version of yourself, and that is what Peter is calling us to pursue. So number one, we grow up by repenting of sin. Here's number two. We grow up by consuming God's word. We grow up by consuming God's word. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that's the Bible, that by it you may grow up into salvation. So one of the things I love about our church is how many babies we have around here. Okay, there's just like babies on babies on babies. They're everywhere. Uh, fun fact, our kids' ministry has doubled since the same time last year. Isn't that exciting? So I, that's, that's why we're going to have like tons of space in the new building. We're going to have the mom's room because, man, we've got a lot of babies and we love it. Okay? Here's something you learn when you have a baby, and I've had four of them. You bring your baby home. Let me tell you what your baby doesn't care about. Your baby doesn't care about the crib. They don't, care about, they don't care about the changing table. They don't care about the curtains. You know what they care about? They care about some milk. That is what your baby, and that's all they want. That's like what, you can literally have them in a cardboard box, but if they are, if they are getting milk, they're going to be very, very happy. Newborns crave spiritual milk, or crave milk, and if they get it, they will grow. Well, Peter is applying that principle to us. He's saying, hey, if you want to grow up spiritually, then you have to consistently consume the word of God. That's what he's referring to when he says pure spiritual milk. And this is a theme that we see all throughout the scriptures. This isn't just a Peter thing. Um, all the way back in Deuteronomy chapter 6, God is speaking to the people of Israel, and right as they're about to go into the promised land. And he basically says, hey, the words that I've given you, you need to meditate on them, you need to think about them, you need to teach them to your kids. That's what he says in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Then they get into the promised land, Joshua chapter 1, he's the new leader, he's taken over from Moses, and God says to Joshua, look, meditate on my word day and night, so that you may be prosperous in all of your ways. You get to Psalm 119, and David asks this rhetorical question, how can a young man keep his way pure? It's a good question for us to ask. How can a young adult keep their way pure? It's very difficult to do. And David answers by guarding it according to your word. In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of, the, the mouth of God. And in Colossians chapter 3, Paul said to the church in Colossae, hey, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Here's the summary. Just as physical health follows physical diet, so spiritual health follows spiritual diet. Just as physical health follows physical diet, spiritual health follows spiritual diet. For example, if you intake social media, 24-hour news, and trashy websites, you'll probably be spiritually sick. Right? Think about it. When was the last time you scrolled social media for 40 minutes, and at the end, you thought, man, I feel great. You know, before this, I was kind of anxious, and I was lethargic, and I was pretty jealous, but I, I'm none of those things now. Like, I feel refreshed, I feel content in the Lord, and clear on my call. No, like that's never happened in your life, right? And in my life either. The truth is, man, if, if, we, you know, if we put garbage in, we'll get garbage out. I mean, we know that physically, right? Like that makes sense. But it's also true spiritually. When we are consuming the word of God consistently, God uses it to transform our character. Um, I saw an interesting study that was done that demonstrated this connection. 
Uh, so a group called Back to the Bible surveyed over 400,000 people about their relationship to the Bible, kind of in their spiritual life. And here's what they found. This is kind of the big takeaway from the study. This is pretty remarkable. Someone who engages the Bible four more times a week, so reads it four more times a week, is 407% more likely to memorize Scripture, 228% more likely to share their faith, 59% less likely to view pornography, and 30% less likely to struggle with loneliness. That was just, when they did all the surveys of all these people, that was, the, that was the turning point. When you read the Bible more than you don't read the Bible in a week, when you get over the halfway point, man, it really starts to have these profound impacts in your lives. And so we grow up by consuming God's word. That's kind of the big principle Peter's giving us. So here's the question. What if you don't want to consume it? So ask honest questions here at church. What if you're just like, that's great, Josh, I just don't want to. I have no desire for the word of God. Well, Peter actually kind of speaks to that. Look at verse 3. He says, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So Christianity is a religion of the heart. What that means is that there are times that you sort of have to buckle down and do the right thing even though you don't feel like it, but that shouldn't be the dominant experience of your faith. More and more as you are understanding the grace of God, the goodness of God, the glory of God, the kindness of God, the wisdom of God, more and more you want to do the thing that he's called you to do. You might not always follow through on it, but there's at least a desire, and you're like, man, I want to do that. I want to be changed. I mean, think about it. Um, when you taste something as good, what do you do? You're like me, you eat more of it, right? So, so think of, if I don't eat more of something, there's one of two things going on. Either I don't really think it tastes good, or I'm full, Right? It's like, oh, man, that does taste good, but I'm just so full, I can't eat, you know, any more because I'm just stuffed. So if, if you find yourself just not really having a desire for the Word of God, I think there's probably two reasons why that might be. Um, the first is you might just be so full of other things. Like, your diet might be so full of kind of junk food spiritually that you just don't have mental space for the Word of God. And so if that's the case, it, it might be time to kind of evaluate your diet. And to look at like, man, what, what needs to go away so that the word of God can come in so I can become more spiritually healthy? So that's the first reason. The second reason you might not have a desire for the word of God is, is because you haven't been born again. That, that you don't actually have a new heart. You know, um, it, it's worth saying, newborn infants don't all drink the same amount of milk, but they all drink some milk. Christians don't all have the same desire for God, and that changes based on the season of your life, but all true Christians have some desire for God. And so if you find yourself just being like, I just have no desire whatsoever for God or for his word, it might be worth asking, man, am I really born again? Like, have I really grappled with the reality of my sin and the call to repentance? Have I surrendered myself to the lordship of Jesus? It might be possible that, man, you're in church, but you're not in Christ. That you might have even been baptized, but you don't really believe. And I would say that's not, that's not a shameful thing. That would just be, if you realize that about yourself, the best thing you can do to start growing is say, man, I, I just need to repent and believe. I need to ask God to change me, to give me a new heart, and to give me more desires so that I want to pursue him and I want to consume his word, okay? So we grow up by repenting of sin, number one. Number two, we grow up by consuming God's word. Here's number three. We grow up by belonging to God's church. We grow up by belonging to God's church. This is verse four. As you come to him, so that's kind of what we do, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. So that's referring to Jesus. He's the cornerstone. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up. So that's God. As a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So as we come to him, he builds us up. Is that encouraging to know? That God is just as involved in your spiritual growth as you are? That in fact, I would say that God is more committed to your sanctification than you are. 
that, that God is building you up. As we come to him, God builds us up. And the primary way God does that is through these ways that he's provided that if we lean into them, we'll strengthen our faith. So these have been called the means of grace for many, many years. It's like, hey, if you will do this thing, it will strengthen your faith. So in the Old Testament, God gave them an entire calendar. They had like all these festivals and parties and stuff. And then when they would do that, it would remind them of who God is and it would remind them to pursue him. In the New Testament, we have all kinds of things. So uh, we have the the corporate gathering of the church to worship. Uh, We have uh, communion. We have baptism. We have all these different means that if we will kind of walk in them, God will work through them to help us grow. And one of the primary means of grace that God has given you in your life to help you grow is the local church, is the local church. Did you notice in verse four, that you come to God as an individual and he builds you into a community. Do you understand? You come as a single stone, what does God do? He then takes you and combines you with other stones to build a spiritual house. You come as a single individual, he then brings you into a holy priesthood, a collection of priests. You see, spiritual house and holy priesthood are images in the New Testament for the church. You can just go through and study it. He's always talking about the church. One of the primary ways that you cooperate with the work of God in your life is belonging to a local church. It doesn't have to be this church, but I'm telling you, it needs to be a church. The New Testament says that the church, another image, is the body of Christ. Okay, the body of Christ. So let's say Jesus wants to encourage you. He's looking, he's like, man, she's had a hard week. I really want to encourage her. Let's say Jesus wants to direct you. Hey, he's trying to figure out what to do next in his life. I really want to give him some direction. Let's say Jesus wants to challenge you. Man, she's not seen this area of sin. She's not seen how toxic this relationship is. I need to address her. Would you want Jesus to do that for you? I would. Well, if the church is the body of Christ, how do you think Jesus is going to do that? I mean, I guess he could send an angel. I've never had an angel sent directly to me. Maybe you have. If so, lean into that. But like most of us don't get these like divine revelations from Jesus in our quiet time, right? So how does does Jesus encourage us and direct us and challenge us and build us up? Through his body, the local church. You see, many people want to know God's will, they want to sense God's leadership, and they want to be led by God's spirit, but they've cut themselves off from his body. Guys, the local church is the gymnasium of the soul. It's the place that God smooths off your rough edges. It's where you serve, forgive, weep, and rejoice. It's the place where you learn to live under authority, and then one day, you learn to lead with authority. It's the place that you learn to love people that are not like you. It's the place that you learn to be somewhere, not because it meets every one of your desires and needs, but because you have in common with those people something that is more important than what is different. It's, it's where you learn what a godly husband looks like. It's where you learn what it looks like to walk with Jesus for 65 years. It's where you learn what it looks like to be, man, someone in your career that is salt and light. It's where you learn, man, how to walk with the Lord through pain and suffering and loss. Man, that's all going to happen through the local church. So if you're not deeply engaged with a local church, you're a lot like a child who skips dinner every day. You'll probably survive, I hope, but you won't be as strong and you won't be as nourished as you could be. Okay, so it doesn't have to be this church. I know that feels like a self-serving point, right? But I'm just saying you can't read the New Testament without concluding that the local church is the primary means of grace that God has for you in your life. So the third way that we grow up is by belonging to God's church. Here's verse 6. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So that's Jesus. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, it is the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. That's a little confusing because Peter's quoting all this Old Testament Scripture. So so what is he saying? Well, let me explain to you what a cornerstone is. Okay, um, so the cornerstone was the first 
most foundational, most expensive, and most important stone in an ancient foundation. Okay, so they didn't have concrete and rebar back then. So the way that you would build a house would you have to you'd have to lay a stone foundation. And the, the size of the cornerstone and the strength of the cornerstone determined what kind of house you could build. The bigger the stone, the stronger the stone, the larger and more glorious building you could create. It was the stone that every other stone connected into. It set the blueprint for the house. So Peter's saying that Jesus Christ is the ultimate cornerstone. That Jesus Christ is the stone that God has laid, and if you will build your life upon him, you won't be put to shame. Instead, you'll be blessed. That is what Peter is saying. When you build your life on Jesus as the cornerstone, you won't be put to shame. But if you build your life on something else, you will fall and you will be put to shame, as he says in verse 8. The truth is, practically, every single one of us has a cornerstone in life. We all have a cornerstone. It might be money, it might be achievement, career, family, fun, health, fitness, sex, education. A lot of times you don't know what your cornerstone is until it's taken away. We've had that experience. Oh, man, I didn't realize how much I depended on physical health for my joy until like I've got this you know chronic pain or I didn't realize and how much I depended on relationship for man my my hope and my joy until I was single right you know just go on and on and on you don't realize what your cornerstone is until it fades away so one one of the things that God is calling you to do in this passage is like hey cooperate with the Lord by building your life on the cornerstone that will stand like don't go and build your life on a bunch of cornerstones that aren't going to make it that are going to end up being like sand when the storm comes Practically, that means put Jesus first. The cornerstone was the first thing that got laid, and it was central to the whole building. So God is saying, hey, make that true in every area of your life. Put him first in your marriage, and in your family, and in your finances, in your career, in your education, and in your retirement. Look, don't have a spouse-centered marriage. Have a Jesus-centered marriage. Don't have a child-centered home. Have a Christ-centered home. Don't have a you-centered life. Have a Jesus-centered life. At biblical principles, if you want God to bless something, put him first in it. So if you're like, man, I want God to bless my education. I want God to bless my career. I want God to bless my family. Fantastic. Put him first. That's what the scriptures would say. When we build on the cornerstone of Christ, we are not put to shame. Now, that doesn't mean God is going to make everything easy and simple, and you're going to have all these physical financial blessings, but it does mean that you're not going to be put to shame, and you're going to have built your life on something that can last. But verse 7 and 8 is a warning, because Peter says, hey, if you build your life on something else, it will eventually stumble and fall. So a good question to consider is, what area of my life isn't fully built upon Jesus? What area of my life isn't fully built upon Jesus? And what do I need to do to remedy that? All right, here's number four. We grow up by repenting of sin, consuming God's word, belonging to God's church. And number four, we grow up by proclaiming God's glory. We grow up by proclaiming God's glory. Peter says this, verse nine, but you, those who have built your life on Christ, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So Peter, after commanding us in a bunch of different ways, calls us back to the identity that we've received in Christ. If you are a Christian, he reminds you of who you are four times before he tells you one thing to do. He says you are a chosen race and a holy nation. And that means you've been included in the people of God. Of all the nations of the earth, God chose Israel to be his special people, and now he has chosen you to belong to him. You are a chosen race and a holy nation. You are a royal priesthood. Priests were a special class of people that mediated between God and man. They were the people that you went to if you wanted to learn about God. What Peter is saying is that's you now. You have made a royal priesthood. God has given you a calling in this community so that your friends and family can come to you and learn about God. You are the mediator. You are a people for his own possession. God didn't rent you. 
okay? God didn't rent you. God bought you with the blood of Christ. That means he's committed to you. He's not going to let you fall into disrepair. He has great plans for your renovation and restoration in life. Now, in light of all of those realities, all of those things which are true of you in Christ, Peter gives us our calling. He says that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous life, light. Friends, if you've ever asked the question, what is my purpose in life? That's it. What is the purpose of my career? What, why am I married? Why do I have children? Why, why did God give me these abilities and this talent? Why did God give me this platform? Why did God give me this money? Why does God have me in this place at this time? That is the answer. The purpose of my life, the purpose of your career, your marriage, your education, your abilities is that you might proclaim the excellencies of God. As the, uh, as the Westminster Catechism said, what is the chief end of man to worship God and to enjoy him forever? And that is what I was created to do. That is what you were created to do. And Psalm 1611 tells us that when we do that, we experience joy and pleasures forevermore. There was a time when you weren't part of God's people. There was a time when you hadn't been set free from the power of sin. There was a time when you hadn't received mercy. There was a time when you didn't have a heavenly father. There was a time that you didn't have a spiritual family and you had no eternal inheritance. But that time has passed. And now you do. Everything has changed. Now in response, you grow up. That's what Peter is saying. In response, you mature. You become the holiest version of yourself possible. Why? So that you can proclaim the excellencies of the God who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And we find our motivation for doing that by looking to the person of Jesus Christ. You see, when Jesus Christ came to earth, have you ever thought about this? He took on flesh. Do you know what that means? He had to grow up. Jesus put flesh and weakness on over his divinity, which meant he had to grow in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and with man. You see, the one who crafted the cosmos had to learn how to swing a hammer. The one who is the very word of God had to work hard to memorize and understand the scriptures. The one who's the very expression of righteousness had to live a perfectly righteous life. Jesus Christ grew up. Why? So that he could lay down so that he could lay down his life as a substitute for us, so that he could offer his perfect righteousness as a gift. Friends, Jesus Christ grew up to earn your salvation, so now you get to grow up in response. And that is a beautiful call.